Every health system leader has executive management challenges facing their organization. This show supports leaders in addressing those challenges with cutting-edge information, leading strategies, and sharing best practices. Listen in and gain keen insight as industry leaders share their stories. The Baldridge Foundation welcomes you to Leader Dialogue Radio. Hi and welcome. This is Dr. Roger Spullman again with another exciting episode of Leader Dialogue. And thanks so much for tuning in. And uh, just to remind you that Leader Dialogue is sponsored by the Malcolm Baldridge Foundation with great support from our sponsor about healthcare. And uh, as usual, I have my colleague and friend, Ben Sawyer, who's an executive with About, and he is going to join me in this uh, really great discussion we're going to have today. So welcome, Ben. Thank you, Roger. You and I both had the privilege of working with many great leaders throughout our careers. And I think if you ever, um, if you ask any great leader, you scratch deep enough from the surface, you're going to find them and say, who really had an impact on your life? You're going to find a teacher or a coach, I would think. Has that been your experience as well? Anybody in your life that stands out? There have been several. And the characteristics of each is that they were willing to take the time to listen and learn and understand. Uh, one of the most significant experiences I had was um, uh, reaching out to see Everett Koop uh, during the initial Bill Clinton healthcare transformation. He took the call and agreed to meet with us for about three hours. So we went and talked to him about healthcare transformation and some of the things we were working on. And he was very gracious with his time. He listened well. He provided good recommendations and followed up. And again, you just don't expect somebody of that stature, you know, as the Surgeon General of the United States to do that. But he did because of the kind of leader he was. Oh, that's great. That's great. I've had similar experiences. And I, I've been so blessed and fortunate to have been mentored and coached not only as a student, you know, I had, I was involved in athletics and I loved the, what I learned from some of my coaches and teachers, but then later in life, I've been coached and mentored by people, many of whom I've never met before. And, uh, and today's guest, I'm so excited. I did reach out like you reached out to Sierra Coop. I reached out to, to uh, today's guest, you know, sort of a cold call and he was so gracious to return my call and he's with us today. So I am just absolutely delighted to introduce to our audience, Michael Bungie Stanier, and uh, and Michael, I've I've heard him on uh, several podcasts, and I have read his book, uh, The Coaching Habit, which we're going to get into a little bit. But Michael is Australian. He is, uh, but he's a Canadian now and living in Canada. Some of my best friends, my bike riding friends, are Canadians uh, here in California, and I I love. I love my Canadian friends are so kind and generous. So, but that's Michael. And he's also a lawyer. And by the way, he's a Rhodes Scholar. And, uh, but he's got a wonderful sense of humor. He's got great stories. I don't know that we'll get into to those right now, but entrepreneur, coach, and author. Now, when I say author, his book, The Coaching Habit, has sold eh, just a little more than a million copies. And that's incredible. That's an incredible feat. And uh, um, he has a company called Box of Crayons, which he's successfully stepped away from. It's in Toronto, but he's he's stepped away from most of the time, still the owner, but he's transferred the ownership 
of or the uh, responsibility, day-to-day responsibility to a, a trusted colleague, which again is a great, a great story. But Michael, thank you so much for just speaking with us today. Uh, look, Roger, I'm very happy to be here. And I will well, say one, one minor correction. You said I was a lawyer. I do have a law degree. I finished my law degree being sued for defamation by one of my law professors. So it really wasn't going well. And uh, luckily I had a a break that meant that I didn't follow the legal career path because I'd have been a terrible lawyer. I mean, I've just been awful. So yeah, I survived a law degree (laughs) is a better way of putting it. Thanks for that correction. And that is a great, a great story. I I have heard that. So, and again, it speaks to your sense of humor and, and uh, there is one thing that I want to get into about, you know, taking your work seriously, but yourself not seriously, which I I think is great, but listen, um, you know, we, we want to talk about some things. Most of our audience is concerned about um, self-improvement. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of Baldridge folks here. They're in, 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 uh, very concerned about improvement, continuous improvement for their companies. And this whole notion of coaching, yeah. um, you know, let's, let's even start with that. I, I think it was from a Brene Brown interview uh, or you were talking to Brene Brown and actually coaching her, but <laughs> yeah. I, you were, you're referencing that uh, with Carrie Newhoff and you said that you just admire people who take their work really seriously, but not themselves. Mm. Yeah. You know, I have to do that. Like, because if you saw what was going on in my head, you would definitely not be able to take yourself seriously, but there's a way of showing up with a lightness to who you are in this world. And uh, I think, it's this weird combination, um, Roger, of confidence and humility that can be a really powerful stance as a, as a leader. You know, confidence around, you know, essentially I'm, I'm, I'm good at who I am and what I do and what I know. And humility of I'm deeply flawed and I've got all these things I don't know and mistakes I make and patterns that I'm in. And if you can hold both of those together, it sets you up with... Um, you know, that humility is such an interesting word. The, the root origin of it is comes from the same uh, root word that gives us humus, meaning ground. So I think of humility meaning you've got your feet on the ground. You see yourself for this, the, the best of who you are and also the, the flaws of who you have. And just go, that makes you the messy person, you, you know, messy, wonderful person you are today. And I think that allows you then to say, I can see myself for who I am and I can be committed to do the very best in the work that I try and do. You know, that's that's so interesting. It just brought to mind some people get paralyzed by the the who I really am part of it and yeah. they fall into imposter syndrome. You should feel a degree of imposter syndrome because the interesting stuff is actually the stuff that's on the edge of your competence and your confidence and yourself, you know, your your sense of experience and your skills. And you're like, this is interesting. I don't know how to do any of this. <laughs> I hope nobody asks me what I'm doing because I'm making it all up. And I'm like, you know, people go, oh, imposter syndrome, that's a bad thing. And I'm like, you know, imposter syndrome just means that you've taken on something that's daunting and you've committed to learning and growth. And that's to be celebrated as much and, and to be managed at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I, I love that balance that you mentioned, you know, balancing confidence and curiosity. When I, and I, you know, I've left healthcare you know, as a full-time occupation, but I do got a lot of vestigial hangover and I do a lot of coaching and I, yeah. and I, in this balance between courage and confidence and curiosity and humility. Yeah. And, you know, and that's been such a helpful concept 
to bring people through to get to see that into in their own lives. And yeah, it's okay to be courageous. Your followers want you to be courageous, but they want you to also be right. curious. I think an interesting experience I've had is um, I, I added as my signature, my email, the line, you're awesome and you're doing great. Um, yeah, I, you know I, what? I, Let me just say something about that. I thought yeah. that was just for me when I first saw that. So. That's right. <laughs> and, and almost everybody does. And I get, I get a number of emails a week where people write to me and go, thanks for that. That actually made me feel great. And no, then, was, the, then, it, then there's a slight moment again. of disappointment. Say it again, Michael. Sorry to interrupt. Say it again because I stepped all over that. Yeah. So, um, you know, in the, my email where I'm like, you're awesome and you're doing great. And it's my standard signature. The first time people get it, they'll often write back to me going, thank you. I really appreciated being seen and encouraged and supported. And then the second time they realize it's my email signature and they're a bit disappointed. And then the third time they're like, it still makes me feel good. Yeah. <laughs> and there's this recognition that one of the things you can do as a leader and yeah, what I would just say as a leader is have that as a achievement, which is, you know, fundamentally you're awesome and you're doing great. Now, how do we deal with what's going on right now? Yeah. Uh, that it really had the desired effect with me and, and I, and I sent it to Ben, you know, I sent your email. I said, look at this, you know, <laughs> we're going to well, get Michael You are awesome here. and you are doing great. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. You are too. And, uh, and, and really the fact that um, your book in and of itself, I think it's, I think it's really, you know, I've written a couple of books, which are trash. They were rubbish, you know, <laughs> but um, so I know how difficult it is. I enjoy writing, yeah. but I know it's terribly difficult and, and it's, I think it's much easier, I would suspect it's much easier to write a very difficult book or a long book than it is to write a short, you know, could you just talk a little bit about sure. that challenge? Yeah. Um, the way I think about it is, is twofold. I think to myself when I'm writing a book, what's the shortest book I can write that would still be useful? Yeah, I love that. Because I'm trying to be patient-centered, if you want to use medical term around this. And I'm like, yeah. what is it like to actually come to a book <laughs> and decide whether you want it or not? So I imagine a person showing up in an airport. She's a busy senior-ish leader, probably mid-level leader in her, her organization. She's doing the best she can with her team, but she's exhausted. They're exhausted. They're tapped out. Um and she doesn't quite know how to take the next step into being a more effective leader. And she scans the books and she picks this one up and flips through it and, it, and it's spacious and it's got design to it. And she thinks to herself, I, can, I could probably read most of this on the flight and I can fit it into my purse. So I thought all of that as I was designing this book because I self-published it. So I had some control over, the, over the, the look and the feel of things. And... So there's that one principle, which is what's the shortest book I can write that would be most useful. And then there's that wonderful quote um, from one of the one of your Supreme Court justices who said, look, I don't give a fig for simplicity on this side of complexity, but I would give everything for simplicity on the other side of complexity. Uh, and yeah. for me, I see one of the things that I am good at and I try and stay good at is to keep working information until it become it has a, a clarity and a practicality and a usefulness of it. So the essence of the coaching habit is actually to unweird coaching. Because you know, coaching comes with a whole bunch of baggage. You know, it's like 
if you're, you know, you might go, look, I've met some life coaches and they're all a bit too woo woo for me. Or, you know, I was scarred by a sporting coach, made me doing pushups in the mud. Or you just go, look, I'm, I'm, um, look, I'm a, I'm a medical professional. I'm a, I'm an, a physician. I'm a surgeon. I don't have time for that stuff. I've got, I've got a job to do. I don't want to be a coach. I want to be a CEO or I want to be a, a, you know, an MD or whatever it might be. And I'm trying to say, look, I want, you don't need to be a coach, but if you can be a leader who is more coach-like, that is an extremely powerful and underutilized leadership skill. And here's the simple but difficult behavior around being more coach-like. Can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? And it's, you know, it's one of the known things about doctors and there's research about this, which I think I even mentioned in the book, which is like, there was a study that said on average, GPs interrupt their patient after, I think it was like 17 seconds. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, I read that and I went, I think that's a bit unfair for GPs because I think that's just humans. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Humans interrupt people after about 17 seconds. And if as a leader, you understand that one of the most powerful things you can do, not just for the other person, but for yourself is become really good at helping them figure out what the problem was or is rather than think that you're there because of the answers that you have. It shifts how you see yourself and how you contribute to your, your organization, to your team and the people that you lead. Um, and it also means that you work slightly less hard. And I think at this stage, everyone's going, can I do less work? And one of the, one of the ways you do less work is you stay curious a little bit longer. You know, I'm thinking of, colleagues i'm thinking of myself you know i i was uh when you mentioned earlier talking about you're just making it up you know you get this imposter syndrome i was a ceo very early in my life and and i would go to meetings with these seasoned executives who had all been doing this for years mm. and i would just say to myself i was terrified i'd say i'm the only one in this room who doesn't know what's going on i don't get yeah. it yeah and and you stay in the you stay in the business long enough, and then you every once in a while you catch yourself saying, looking around, going, "Am I the only one who understands? You know what's going on?" But but I I did I did have an experience. Um, you talk a lot about facilitation and mm. and um, in your own practice in your own work, and I totally relate to that. But I, early on, I was very young, and I was asked to facilitate a group of CEOs. I, I was a CEO myself, but these. Mm -hmm. With, it was a national healthcare board. And, and I, I learned something really interesting. I was very naive and I thought, well, you know, either people are talking or they're listening. Right. <laughs> which is not at all true. They're either talking or they're reloading, right. you know, waiting right. for a space. And you, you know, that just, that's kind of the mode, the, the model that we're forced into. People mm -hmm. are looking to you for answers. They want you to share yeah. their answers. But how do we, how do you take people who have kind of been vectored toward that type of leadership yeah. and make them more curious? Well, you first of all acknowledge that they've had a lifetime's practice of being rewarded for having the answer. And because having done a some work in the, in the healthcare profession, I think particularly in healthcare, you're like, you know, if you're a medical professional, you've spent years <laughs> being tested for knowledge. Like, yeah. do you know your stuff? Do you have yeah. the answers? That's kind of a key metric of success. Sure. So it's just worth recognizing and appreciating that there's, there's, you've had a lot of practice. 
yeah. at being the person with the answer and a lot of encouragement to say, here's how you get the star and the A and the status and the authority and the recognition and the reward and the little shot of dopamine from having that advice. So just start there. But I think it's worth understanding the, the prizes and punishments of being the person who always has the answer. And it turns out that often the prizes are a bit more short-term. Uh, the, the prizes of having been the person with the answer are a bit more short-term. And the price that gets paid, the punishments, if you like, for you and by others, for you always being the person giving the answer, have a longer-term effect. So the prizes you get from always being the person with the answer is you get some of that kind of short-term hit of status and authority and dopamine and all of that kind of like, I feel good. I may be getting old, but I'm still adding value. Look at me. I'm still the wise I person still here. They still it. come to yeah. me. I still yeah. got it. You know, and, 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 you know, it's also, and look at me, I'm really helping. I'm really yeah. trying to be helpful to this person and make their life easier for them. And look at me. I'm also kind of still in control. I'm, I, I still got my kind of a grip on what's actually going on there, but the price that gets paid. I mean, first of all, if you're always the person who has the answer, you're always taking the oxygen to say, let me tell you what the final answer is here. There's a foundational message that's getting through to the other person, which is you're not smart enough, good enough, clever enough, fast enough, experienced enough to figure this out or to have the answer. Mm -hmm. So it's a way that is constantly setting up a you're not quite good enough yet <laughs> dynamic, yeah. which is, you know, it's diminishing and disempowering all those other words for that other person. But it's not, it's not just that, because that's that has a consequence, but also that then means that your organization is full of people who've had a message to say, you're not yet ready to step up. And one of the most, one of the, the truths about powerful organizations is when responsibility and accountability sits at the level it should within that organization. And if you're the advice giving type, what that means is responsibility and accountability tends to be moving up the hierarchy to you. So you get bottlenecked at the top. And then that's the final price that gets paid, Roger, which is like, it's just exhausting yeah. <laughs> trying to be the person with the answers. Yeah. And actually, the, for most of us, the older we get, the more we realize how little we know <laughs> and how outdated our answers are. And the only stuff that we do know for sure now, people can look up on Google much faster than you could say it anyway. <laughs> so there's, there's also a way that you become your own bottleneck. You become yeah. frustrated to your team. You, you get drained by the amount of that's being asked of you by everybody because now you've just now everybody's trained you to be the, the the person who has to give them the answers and so there's a real consequence to everybody here which is like you and the other person and the organization pay a price for the fact that you can't stay curious a little bit longer mm. it, it is a um thank you for that that's a great great answer great advice uh, it, it is kind of a ripoff, though, that some people, we are susceptible as leaders, we get pushed into that mode and, and forced into a place where we don't belong and where, you know, we're not going to perform at the best because we're yeah. going to be forced to give an answer. And it might be a pretty bad answer, but it's, it's an answer. Yeah. And, and um, you know, Andy Stanley, who I admire greatly, you know, he says, something to the effect that, you know, leaders who don't ask questions of their followers or ask for the opinions of their followers soon find themselves surrounded by people who have nothing to say. <laughs> that's right. And, you know, that's a lonely place. But, you know, it's, it's worth talking to people about, so why are you resisting this? 
I mean, you've got Roger and me kind of banging the drum and waving the flag about curiosity, but we're already converts. And if you're listening to this going, yeah, but you don't understand, <laughs> you're like, you're, you're right, I probably don't fully understand. But it's just worth saying that staying curious longer doesn't mean never giving an answer, doesn't mean never giving advice. It doesn't mean moving into some sort of weird thing where all you do is ask questions. Um, it means staying curious a little bit longer. And I think that means like a minute or two minutes. I mean, let's start small in terms of building this habit. And one of the things that, and this is a tactic, one of the things that can be reassuring so you don't feel like they're going to leave without ever having heard your good advice or leave with a terrible idea that they've come up with that you can't somehow correct. Yeah. You know, if somebody comes to you and go, hey, Michael, how do I? <laughs> and of course, as soon as the how do I thing, your advice monster shows up and it goes, oh, look, you have to tell them. They've, they've literally asked you. You'd be, you'd be letting yourself down and them down if you didn't give them an answer. Yeah. But know that's your advice monster. And you can just say, look, calm down. Stay curious a little bit longer. And here's the, here's the script. Because I know, you know medical professionals love a good script. Sure. It's like... I've got an answer for you, which I'll definitely share. But before I tell you what I think, let me ask you, what's your first thought on this? Oh, it's great. But, because they will always have an idea. They're not yeah. coming to you going, I have not a single thought on how I might tackle this. <clears throat> so ask that question and then be quiet. <laughs> you don't need to say any more than that. You can just be quiet. And then whatever they say, nod your head and be encouraging. It's like, oh, it's interesting. Yeah, possibly. If somebody comes up with a, a, a ludicrous response, my response to it is, well, maybe. <laughs> I'm, like, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm nodding my head. I'm not saying it's right or it's wrong. I'm just going, oh, maybe. Because what I want is them to keep thinking because I'm making them smarter, which means I'm making us smarter by them thinking. And then I might go, great, what else could you do? So I'm using That's the great. and what else question, which I think is just one of the best coaching questions because it recognizes that the first answer is never their only answer and it's rarely their best answer. Yeah. So then you go, oh, great. That's, I like it. What, well, maybe. Yeah. What else? What else could you do here? And I'll come up with something else to their surprise. And then you go, this is great. What else? Is, I mean, is there anything else? And um, suddenly they've come up with two or three things. And now you've made them smarter because they've been figuring stuff out and they've saying stuff out loud and you've been encouraging that. So you're shifting how power works. But here's what's also great, which is like, now you know what they know. So it means that when you do offer up an idea or a solution or an opinion, you're not being redundant by just repeating something that they'd already figured out. You're actually saying, okay, this is great. I like everything you've said. I've got one additional thought that might be helpful for you. And now you get to offer up your solution, but you're also doing it in a way that disrupts the hierarchy a little bit because now you're, you're, answer isn't the word of God from on high saying, and here's the answer. I've carved it out on a stone tablet for you. <laughs> You're just going, Hey, look, I'm just adding one thing to the mix that you've already created. Now you can go. So of all of those ideas, which feels most useful or most valuable for you. And you're still getting answers. You're still getting it done really quickly, but you're doing it in a way that starts shifting responsibility to that other person to figure it out. And you I'll say said, one last thing, Roger. Oh, yeah. You, you mentioned uh, the Brene Brown podcast. If people yeah. want to hear what this sounds like in real time, you know, for five minutes or so on her podcast, at about the 45-minute mark, um, I coached Brene, which was 
intimidating because I didn't know she was going to make me do that. Yeah. But you'll hear me holding the space and asking a few questions, just the ones I've repeated now. And you'll see how much progress we make in a really short time. And I've listened to that and there's a, an uncomfortable amount of silence. <laughs> so uncomfortable. Yeah. Which, which again, I think we as leaders, we're really, I know I am, I, we're really uncomfortable with silence because it makes us look like we don't know what's going on. And well, even more fundamentally, it makes your lizard brain go, what's happening here? <laughs> I yeah. like, I like you, your amygdala is freaking out your unconscious yeah. brain. So yeah. you, you and everybody gets a bit uncomfortable with silence. So for the skeptics that are listening to this yeah. and they're living in a completely tumultuous world that has been set by COVID at a pace they never were comfortable with. Yeah. And they're seeing people leaving their organization and patients not getting necessarily what they need uh, and so forth to to hear this advice seems kind of counterintuitive to mm. to them perhaps like yeah that's great you're an author you've got plenty of time but <laughs> right you know i'm a busy executive trying to run an organization with 15,000 people yeah and uh and frankly i'm just putting out fires so how is this relevant yeah it's a very good question and you know, staying curious a little bit longer isn't going to fix the exhaustion in the healthcare system. I wish it, I wish it could, because we've got the same up in Canada, which is like people leaving the healthcare in, in droves, people just absolutely tapped out. It's, it is a very hard time to be working in that system, I would guess. But I think one of the things that people have an assumption about curiosity is it takes a whole lot of time for not much value add. And I think one of the ways you can reframe this is to say, staying curious just a little bit longer doesn't take a whole lot extra time. It's not actually additive to what you're currently doing. It's just actually transformative of what you currently do. Same conversations, but you're just going to stay curious a little bit longer. One of the most powerful questions, I think, in the book, I call it the focus question, is to ask, what's the real challenge here for you? Medical system, and I'm guessing, I mean, I've guessing, but you know, it's famously run by triage. So you're yeah. trying to figure out what's most important. Um, so you've got some deep domain expertise around that. But often the presenting challenge is not the real challenge. And if you can stay curious, it's a little bit longer to go rather than putting out the fire, <laughs> just going, all right, there's a fire. We, that, that, the thing to do is putting it out. If you go, but what's the real challenge here for you? And you discover that actually what you got to do is you got to turn off the gas valve <laughs> rather than put out the fire. Not the source. Yeah. That, that, that moment of staying curious and helping other people figure out what's the real challenge here for you actually gives you a chance to be slightly more effective and efficient in terms of the work that you do. Because as a senior leader in particular, you're forced to make the hardest choices and those choices are, what are we going to say yes to? And therefore, what must we say no to? And of course, it always feels in every, every profession, but I would guess in medical even more, it's like we need to say yes to everything and you can't. So you have that difficult responsibility to go, we're going to say yes to this. If you're going to say yes to this, it really behooves you to go, well, what's the real challenge? So we know what we're saying yes to, so we can know what we're saying no to.
Does that resonate at all? Because I'm because I am an it, author sitting in a law room and I don't really know. So no, yeah. it it does very much, Michael. I think you know again, just trying to represent the potential skeptic listener. Yeah. What you're what you're coaching is that it's actually more efficient and more effective to do this than the traditional way because if the problem and its root cause isn't understood and dealt with, it's going to come back and haunt you. Yeah. So if you can take just a minute to press and understand what the source issue is and what the knowledge level is of the people that are there and the good ideas that they have on the front line, which is really where most of the knowledge resides, you end up saving a lot of time and building much greater goodwill is kind of my takeaway from what you're saying. Well, I think you're doing three things. You're spending time figuring out what the real problem is. Curiosity helps do that. You're finding time to bring out the best solutions to that real problem. Curiosity does that. And you're inviting people forward to be the best version of themselves and take the responsibility that's appropriate for them in their role. And if as a senior leader, you're responsible for two things, strategy and culture. Strategy is what's the real problem and what are our best solutions? And culture is how do we bring out the best of our people? So curiosity has a way of feeding those, the, two, the two strands of the DNA of a, of a strong organization. Great, great stuff. I, I, you know, what has happened is what I feared happened. We're out of time, but I have so many other questions, Michael, but uh, thank you so much for doing this work. Um, your new book, How to Begin, is uh, I haven't been able to get into it yet myself, but I'm deep, you know, I'm going to get into it uh, right away. I'm looking forward to that. Your books are extremely practical, pragmatic. So I encourage our listeners to get the coaching habit and work on making the culture of your organization and your leadership more coach-like. Michael, how do people get in touch with you so they learn more about your work? Sure. Look, if you're interested in any of the books, the URL is the title of the book. So thecoachinghabit.com or howtobegin.com. If you like more just about me in general, my website is mbs.works. We've come to the end of our time. We are grateful. There are lots of podcasts. We're so grateful you decided to tune into this one, and we hope that you really got some, some creative solutions. So thanks so much for listening. Thank you again to our guests. Uh, so thank you so much. We'll see you next time. 